Well, hello again, and welcome to another special event from the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director here at the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. And if you're not familiar with us, I started the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint to raise awareness about the use of restraint and seclusion in schools across the country and really even beyond. Our mission is to educate the public and to connect people together who are dedicated to changing minds, laws, policies, and practices around the use of restraint and seclusion and ultimately see these practices reduced and eliminated in schools throughout the nation and beyond. Our vision is really to see safer schools for students, teachers, and staff. We're really excited today to have another great, uh, another great presenter. Uh, we've got today joining us Ron Garrison for a special presentation. We're going to be taking your questions today at the end of Ron's presentation, and we'll have plenty of time for questions. But feel free to post those in the chat at any time. So anytime a question enters your mind, feel free to post that, and we will address it as we get to a point in the um, presentation. I also want to let you know that we are recording this, uh, so this is live, but it will also be made available on Facebook, YouTube, and as an audio podcast that you can download. And we try to do that as quickly as possible. So if you can't make the whole thing, we'll have this available for you to watch later. But before we get started with our introduction of Ron, I wanna go ahead and introduce to you uh, our co-host for the day, Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. Uh, so Jennifer is a wife, a mother of four wonderful sons, uh, two of whom are autistic, a 30-year political activist, uh, who makes the world a more beautiful place for more people. She's lobbied on the federal and state level uh, and organized rallies uh, and civil disobedience, committed to societal change, and believes we live in a system where people have great power. Jennifer is the director of advocacy here at the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. She does a lot of our, our social media and the amazing memes that you see and the messaging. Uh, Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad really to be here. Yeah, excited to have you here today. And we, we've got a great interview on uh, on tap here. So with that, let me go ahead and bring up Ron Garrison. And Jennifer, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to go ahead and introduce Ron to our viewers and listeners. I'd be glad to. Ron Garrison is an MA and MS, is a former public school teacher, school safety consultant, and expert witness in civil litigation. As an expert witness, he has participated in 85 court proceedings, many involving special education students. Because Mr. Garrison is not an attorney, he cannot comment on individual cases, but he can explain his courtroom experiences and assist participants with their understanding of civil litigation. Uh, during Ron's diverse professional career, he taught public high school, was director of student services for a school district, trained teachers and school administrators in safety, classroom supervision, conflict resolution, and violence prevent prevention in 38 states and Canada, worked with the United States Department of Justice and Education as a school safety Oops, looks like she's froze there for a second, but I'll, I'll finish that sentence. Uh, as a uh, school safety expert, as I recall, advisor, you train police and school security, uh, consulted with the jail and prison medical staff in seven states, testified as an expert witness in 85 litigation matters, and introduced uh, teachers and school administrators to resilient-based student interventions, uh, created a law academy, and advocated for restorative justice programs. And Jennifer, sorry, I see you're back now. Uh, oh, what's lost that Oh, I was like, yeah, 
<laughs> you, you 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 dropped off for a second, so I, ju I just picked oh. up your, your next word, hopefully, or I might have repeated the same sentence over again. We'll, we'll never know. But Ron, thank you. We're so excited to have you here today. Uh, I was really um, excited to have an opportunity to meet with you a, a few months ago and and learn about your work. And of course, I, I read your interview in uh, Emma Vandercliff's book and uh, really was excited about all the stories that she wrote about you as well. Um, so we're really excited to have you here. I mean, we talk about restraint and seclusion, obviously, a lot, but this is really a different angle. I mean, we often talk about, you know, alternatives and better ways of working with kids. But I think it's really important for, uh, you know, for parents and individuals to know that there are other ways of uh, addressing these issues. So we're really excited to have you here today. Well, thank you, Guy, and thank you, Jennifer. And I would agree with you. There are uh, alternatives to uh, what we can do in the classroom and within the school and the school district. And one of those alternatives would be this notion of litigation. Mm. So what I wanted to do today was to simply give an overview of what litigation means. Um, the law is complex. Yeah, and I'm going to go ahead and bring up your PowerPoint presentation. And we're okay. going to have you You go ahead and take it away. And we'll be here if you need anything. Just give us a shout. Uh, so let me good. go ahead and bring up your uh, screen now. And everybody now is seeing your screen and you. So I'm going to disappear and let you focus on this great presentation. Thanks, Guy. Well, yep. don't entirely disappear. I won't and, go too and again, far. And again, Jennifer, and we'll talk a little bit about Jennifer here in a moment. Um, but what I, what I indicated is that uh, earlier was that litigation is one of those things that scares folks because we don't know a whole lot about it. And I thought if I could contribute to this process of uh, uh, against aversive harm caused by restraint and seclusion, sharing with people as a primer uh, for civil litigation might be a way to go. Um, and as I often say, you don't restrain what you you don't restrain what you understand. So the idea would be to create more understanding regarding this one option uh, of civil litigation. Now, I want to say that I don't necessarily advocate civil litigation because it is difficult and it is complex. Um, and because I'm not an attorney, I cannot comment on individual cases, but I can explain my courtroom experiences as a retained expert expert and assist participants with their understanding of civil uh, litigation. The key to all this is if you have a concern, um, always ask an attorney. That's the simplest and easiest method to proceed in the area of litigation if you're having an issue with your child in not only a special education environment, but also an institute, other institution um, to help perhaps underscore the necessity to change policy procedures practices and laws relative to um, restraint and seclusion. So let's start with asking the question, what is a lawsuit? A lawsuit is a civil action brought in a court of law in which a plaintiff, a party who claims to have incurred loss as a result of a defendant's actions, demands a legal or equitable remedy. The defendant is required to respond to the plaintiff's complaint. If the plaintiff is successful, judgment is in the plaintiff's favor, and a variety of court orders may be issued to enforce a right, to award damages, or impose a temporary or permanent injunction to prevent an act or compel an act. And this is your first learning, because a lawsuit is not just about money. And uh, when people think of a lawsuit, they think of money first, and that's not necessarily the case. Uh, lawsuits can change policy, they can change practice, and they can change the law. Um, the Seventh Amendment really covers uh, aspects of law in this country on the federal level uh, and was really taken from a practice of English common law, focusing on civil claims 
um, and ensuring that those civil claims, at least again, on the federal level, have the opportunity uh, for a trial by jury. So what is an expert witness? That's again, coming back to what I did within the courts as a court officer is a retained expert. By retained means that we are paid. It's not by subpoena. Uh, we don't have to be in court because the, the court subpoenas us. We're in court because, well, again, we do have to be there, but it's because we are retained to be there. It's a person who has re been recognized and is a reliable specialist who has the knowledge, skills, or experience in a particular area under consideration in a court case. In my, in my particular situation, it would have been teaching, school safety, and special education. The role of the expert witness is to interpret factual information and form an independent and impartial opinion in the form of a written opinion, deposition, and court testimony. An expert can help or hinder your lawsuit. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So what an expert really does is that they gather evidence. They're hired by an attorney, not by the parties, not by the defense uh, individuals or, or plaintiffs, but by the attorney. And uh, we, from that opinion, we usually then are quizzed using what's called a deposition. I'll share more about that later. And ultimately, we end up in court and testify regarding our opinion. Usually, the retained expert is not an attorney. In civil cases, experts increase their perceived objectivity by having a record of assisting both the defense or the plaintiff in different cases. So some experts are only experts for the plaintiff. Some experts are for the defense. In my particular practice, I made sure that I was both uh, because it, it seems that you don't have uh, conflicts of interest more if you uh, serve the interests of both the plaintiff and the defense. Only attorneys retain experts. So uh, Jennifer can't go out, for example, regarding her lawsuit and suddenly hire me. Uh, I'm only retained by, uh, by attorneys. Parties to the lawsuit are usually aware of experts, except during, uh, are uh, usually unaware, excuse me, of experts except during trial and normally have no interaction with experts before, during, or after trial. Obviously, the reason for that is for objectivity so that there can't be any influence on the part of uh, defense or, or plaintiffs. You're supposed to be objective, even though you're hired by one side, but that objectivity carries over to both the attorney that hired you and the opposing counsel as well. How the choice of litigation works to assist in the reduction of restraint and seclusion within the institutions. And this is really why we're here today to talk about issues of restraint and seclusion. And this is how litigation can grease the wheel and help um, ensure, at least in the future, hopefully, uh, that we have much more limited seclusion and restraint than we have in the past. Civil court decisions, in addition to monetary compensation, can provide guiding insight that local, state, and or executive and legislative branches can act upon. Synergies between social movements and litigators have, have led in the past to innovative litigation tactics and some very novel remedies. In some cases and in some jurisdictions, a court may order summary judgment in order uh, or order defendants to revise policy and or practices. If you're a plaintiff working with the plaintiffs and suddenly you receive an email or a memo from counsel indicating that the other side has achieved summary judgment, that's essentially the end of the lawsuit. Again, we'll talk more about that later. Successful court litigation can have the effect of modifying existing local policies and procedures for everyone, 
not just the plaintiff, since an institution or person normally does not want to produce more lawsuits. And this is important when we get to um, to special education uh, and things like administrative uh, orders and that sort of thing, because generally um, those issues focus on the individual family and the individual student. Lawsuits tend to be broader than that. Court case information and decisions are sometimes made available to the general public through the press and other means to increase awareness regarding the impacts of restraint and seclusion. Lawsuits can also influence governing institutions toward further reduction and elimination, as in the federal Keeping All Students Safe Act, which, of course, the passage uh, passage of that Protector Act is pending. Now, Jennifer is with us today, and Jennifer is part of a lawsuit that you see over on the right-hand side. This is um, called a, a complaint, and you you have access to this entire complaint. It goes on for a number of pages, uh, 56 pages, in fact, um, and you can gain access to, on the WAMU uh, website as, as, as well as other websites to gain access to the, to the complaint that Jennifer was, was party to. Uh, Jennifer um, attended, her son attended the Fairfax County Public School. By the way, that's QT that you see over on the right-hand side. And um, if we have time, she'll maybe talk a little bit about how that, how that worked through uh, for her and what the process means and, and whether or not there's been any progress. As an expert witness, what evidence would I use to form an opinion against restraint and seclusion? So the first thing I'm going to do when I look at a complaint, for example, an attorney would send me a complaint uh, that that attorney or that firm has retained me as the expert on their side for the case, is that I'm going to define certain things. And in this particular case, I'm going to define uh, restraint, being a personal restriction that immobilizes or reduces the ability of a person to move his or her torso, arms, legs, or head freely. Seclusion is the involuntary confinement of a person alone in a room or an area from which the person is physically prevented from leaving. Both restraint and seclusion are characterized as aversive or unpleasant stimuli used to change behaviors. Sort of like torture, and we'll talk about that as well later. I would cite allegations of death and abuse related to the use of seclusion or restraint in public and private schools. This comes from a GAO um, study in 2009 A 13-year-old boy with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder at an alternative public school hung himself in a seclusion room weeks after threatening to commit suicide using a cord a teacher reportedly provided to him to hold up his pants. A seven-year-old girl died at a private day treatment center after being held for hours in a face-down or prone restraint on the floor position with multiple staff members. The staff was allegedly unaware that she had stopped breathing until they rolled her limp body over and discovered that she had begun to turn blue. And I might cite uh, this final one. Disabled children as young as six years old were allegedly placed in strangleholds, restrained for extended periods of time, confined to dark rooms, prevented from using the restroom, causing them to urinate on themselves, and tethered to ropes in one public school district, all from a report from a government agency, the General Accounting Office. So I would use that information as well rolled into my opinion as I start gathering data. I would refer to studies such as, again, the the GAO study this time in 2019 about the accuracies of uh, holding school district accountable for the records that they submit regarding restraint and seclusion. 
Um, the GAO study in 2019, for example, found that there were uh, significant inaccuracies in federal restraint and seclusion data, which is required by the federal government. As reported by local school districts for the year 2015-16, 70% of the more than 17,000 school districts in the United States reported zero incidents of restraint and zero incidents of seclusion. Um, all I would say would be unlikely. Next bullet. Of the school districts that serve more than 100,000 students, 10 out of 30 reported zero incidents. Fairfax County uh, Public Schools in Northern Virginia, uh, which is, will be the subject of uh, the lawsuit that I indicated uh, earlier, was among the larger districts that reported zeros for multiple years. However, following an investigation, district officials have publicly acknowledged errors. They are now reporting almost 1,700 incidents in the 2017-2018 school year alone. I would quote discovery evidence from interrogatories and witness depositions. I will explain what that means in a moment. I would name state uh, local, state, and federal laws, policies, and procedures, including visiting sites to gather evidence. Uh, very often when I was retained, I would uh, calendar an opportunity to actually come to the school. Uh, I would walk around the campus. I would interview uh, teachers, administrators. Uh, I would ask questions. They would provide me with answers. And those uh, questions and answers inevitably made it into my written opinion. Site management, including safety and supervision, past practices, statistics, guidelines, intervention, uh, IDEA, ADA 504 information would all be part of the uh, information that I would gather as I was uh, uh, forming my opinion. Uh, site information regarding the plaintiff and others, I would also look to governing agency board records, their policies and their administrative procedures. I would look at applicable county, state and federal laws, such as the Office of Civil Rights, the Department of Education, regional service centers, uh, things like that. I would look at scholarly studies, uh, of which I will mention a few at the end of this presentation. I would look at task force recommendations, uh, any agency, local agency reports. And I would include uh, such federal laws such as 42 USC 1983, which discusses the issue of violations of the uh, Fourth and Fourteenth Amendments. All right, so what do you need to know about litigation before you decide to seek an attorney? Let's talk about what it is and how it can eradicate harmful, aversive practices. Civil litigation is a term to use describe, to describe the legal process applied to non-criminal matters. Civil matters can be described as situations dealing with relationships between people or a contract dispute between corporations or other institutions. Civil litigation is appropriate in circumstances where alternative dispute resolution, sometimes referred to as ADR, such as arbitration, mediation, and other forms of informal dispute resolution are ineffective. So let's look at uh, the five types of ADR and talk maybe a little bit about why they, they would be ineffective in situations of restraint and seclusion, especially where there was a death or serious injury involved. So you see in this little chart, uh, the five types negotiation, this would occur between you and I in a normal situation where we don't have counsel, we simply re resolve our own conflict. Then there's mediation, which is a very flexible process that can be effectively used at any time during the course of a dispute. There's a thing called collaborative law where both parties are represented by a collaborative attorney and both parties agree not to litigate. 
There's arbitration, where there's a neutral arbitrator rendering in a decision called an award after there has been a presentation of evidence. Very often, um, television accounts of, uh, of judges in courtrooms are really arbitration uh, more than, than they are <clears throat> court or civil cases. And then finally, conciliation, which is a neutral third party to communicate with the parties in the exchange of information and settlement options. So this is a little bit different than educators think of when they think of uh, due process uh, and administrative remedies. But more or less, these are the kinds of things that ADR, which can be uh, supported by a school district and in many cases are encouraged for the parties to actually do prior to uh, civil litigation. All right, a few little uh, legal terms that we should talk about. There are two classifications of legal action. One is criminal wrongs. We're not talking about criminality here at all. Uh, criminal wrongs, the government has identified a crime. And civil wrongs, that injuries or interferes, uh, in, injures or interferes with another person's property or, uh, is called a tort. Uh, can you have both criminal proceedings and civil proceedings going on at the same time regarding a particular case? Yes, it happens, usually not at the same time. For example, if there's a sexual assault on campus and the individual has been arrested for that sexual assault, the parents uh, and, and or the legal guardians come back and say, well, we would also like to engage in a civil lawsuit. You could theoretically happen have those two going on, usually not same, simultaneously, but they certainly could go on uh, regarding the uh, the criminal wrongs and the, and the tort, uh, civil lawsuits begin with the filing of a complaint in the proper court, and uh, that complaint that I shared with you earlier of Jennifer's uh, focuses on what it really takes to to write a complaint and uh, and uh, identifies all of the issues um, that were uh, experienced by Jennifer's child and other children in that school district. A harmed person is the plaintiff, okay? Uh, and the accused wrongdoer is called the defendant. So in a, in a criminal court, you don't have plaintiffs. You only have plaintiffs in civil courts. Defendants uh, who lose the judgment can be ordered to pay for damages and or correct conditions that lead to the civil judgment. And this is what I'm advocating, that um, yes, civil action does produce monetary relief. However, what we should all be involved in is uh, correcting the conditions that caused the complaint to begin with. A dispute can be settled even before a suit is filed. Once a suit is filed, it can be settled before the trial begins, during the trial, while the jury is deliberating, or even after a verdict is rendered. Not likely in after, but it can, and I've seen cases where that has occurred. It depends on the state and the jurisdiction. Um, in fact, settlement is a big part of, of, of what lawsuits are about. In fact, 97% of civil cases are settled or dismissed. Before a case proceeds to trial, the discovery and pretrial phases of litigation must be completed. In these phases, each party must exchange uh, certain evidence with one another and related motions that may be decided by the court. The discovery of information regarding aversive practices like seclusion and restraint in schools may later have a profound effect on eliminating those practices both for your child and others in the school district. And uh, discovery is not necessarily something that would be made public, for example, um, when you attempt to mediate, uh, mediate or arbitrate in a school district regarding due process or administrative remedies. 
The federal government and individual states often have different rules regarding cases. Decisions can be rendered either by judges or juries. And I've testified uh, in cases where there's been simply a judge who renders an opinion uh, and juries. And they don't always have to be 12s. In some states, there are six. Other states, there are 12 jurors. Um, but nevertheless, it's, it, it is decided by a court official, uh, usually a judge and or a jury. As I mentioned earlier, about 97% of cases are settled or dismissed. Uh, and they're dismissed for a number of reasons. Uh, frivolous lawsuits, for example, are dismissed very quickly because the system is jammed up enough as it is. And uh, a court officer and or a judge will usually look at a complaint and declare that it is frivolous and simply throw it out. However, it's important to realize that there is no way to anticipate the outcome of any case at its outset. It depends on what kind of information and what kind of uh, statements are made during what we call interrogatories and depositions. These are two very important fact-finding uh, opportunities for counsel, uh, counsel being an attorney, to look at to be able to identify uh, what was true, what was not true. Interrogatories and depositions, especially depositions, are gathered uh, with uh, uh, information that is sworn testimony. Um, and in fact, all named parties have a right to conduct issues of discovery, which is a formal investigation to find out more about the case. The who, the when, the where, the how, the why, the what, those are all part of the questions that are uh, indicative of interrogatories and that also occur during depositions. An interrogatory is simply a question. They are used during the discovery process prior to trial. A party sends a case, uh, a party to a case sends their interrogatories to the opposing party who must answer them. Both sides then can use interrogatories and they are considered mandatory disclosures and obviously truthful disclosures. Nothing worse than a, a false interrogatory. A deposition is basically a process by which attorneys gather information for a case. The deponent, the witness, I was deposed many times as a deponent. I was questioned and provide information through their account of events, my testimony uh, as an expert, and the information I gathered during my investigation. The deponent is placed under oath and asked a series of questions by the opposing counsel. Oftentimes, Additional attorneys present, uh, present will also ask questions. I like this picture because it is very realistic of what a deposition looks like. And if, you're, uh, if you've ever been deposed, you will recognize this. Uh, very quickly, there's always a recording, a video recording usually. As we go from the lower right to the lower left, you see usually uh, this computer with all the information provided by the stenographer uh, as part of the evidence. And then you usually see on the extreme left-hand side of the picture, uh, that would probably be the attorney that, that had um, retained me uh, and or um, one counsel or the other. Then the person raising his hand would be the deponent. In this case, it might be me. Then the stenographer there who, who uh, has a dual function of not only swearing in the witness, but also writing down everything the witness says. And then finally, usually opposing counsel, who is the one who asks questions. So really the, the process outside of recording here involves three individuals, the deponent, the stenographer, and the opposing counsel who ask questions. In some cases, the, um, 
the attorney that uh, would have retained me was is allowed to ask questions, but um, it's it's more or less asked usually by opposing counsel. The major categories for a wrongful act. Now, this is law school stuff, but again, I want you more aware so that when you hear some of these terms, you have a better chance of being able to think about, oh yeah, that tort is a wrong, and then move from there. So a liability is the legal responsibility for harm. Uh, An intentional wrong is action done with the intent of injuring a person, property, or both. Damages can be compensatory, nominal, or punitive. A punitive damage award, which I think you've probably all heard about, are the ones that are in the millions and millions and millions of dollars because for whatever reason, uh, the award was deemed to be punitive, usually against a corporation, rarely against individuals, although that can there are variations on themes. Um, negligence, unintentional torts. This is failure to use reasonable care. And finally, strict liability. Defendant is engaged in an activity so dangerous that there is a serious risk of harm even if they act with utmost care. Proof of both causation and damages is required. So damages are a very important part of a lawsuit. In some cases, what you'll have in a a matter such as uh, restraint and or seclusion is all three of these. You can have an intentional wrong, uh, an action done with the intent of actually injuring the the student. You can have negligence, which is unintentional. Nevertheless, there was pain and harm involved. Or you can have strict liability, where uh, everyone has recognized that the activity is so dangerous that there's serious risk of harm. Uh, And of course, that would apply, of course, to uh, restraint and seclusion, because by now, I hope that most school officials understand that there is a risk of serious harm. Evidence. The heart of the case is the presentation of evidence, and evidence has um, been tough to find these days, uh, except outside of courtrooms, because keep in mind Evidence is the heart of all cases within a courtroom. The law requires evidence for your opinions. They require evidence for moving forward to ensure that frivolous lawsuits are not successful. So there are two types of general evidence, and there are variations on a theme, but for the most part, they are direct and they are circumstantial. Direct evidence usually is that which speaks for itself, uh, an eyewitness account, uh, confession, or objects contributing to liability, for example, a paper trail. Circumstantial evidence usually is that which suggests a fact by implication or inference, Uh, the physical location, testimony that suggests a connection uh, of a questionable action, some physical evidence that suggests litigious activity. Strict rules uh, govern the kinds of evidence that may be admitted into a trial, and the presentation of evidence is governed by very formal rules. Examples of evidence or proof in court including uh, includes affidavits and declarations, photographs, interrogatory responses, that what I mentioned earlier, as well as deposition transcripts, um, copies of letters, copies of documents, uh, the verified complaint, the original complaint, uh, would all be considered examples of evidence. It's also interesting to note that there's a difference between civil court and criminal court in how evidence is used. Reasonable doubt in criminal cases, if the jury or the judge has any reasonable doubt about the defendant's guilt, then it must vote not to convict. Okay, So uh, I don't know whether he's guilty or not. I've got reasonable doubt. 
Well, then we're not going to convict. In civil court, however, there's a different standard. That standard is referred to as the preponderance of the evidence in civil cases. The jury or the judge needs only to decide it if it is more likely than not that the plaintiff's complaint is true. So it's a different standard. One is reasonable doubt. The other is, well, we've stacked enough evidence to convince me that it's probably true. So a preponderance of evidence is a lower requirement for proof than the beyond a reasonable doubt standard used in criminal court cases. So therefore, it would, it's much easier for a plaintiff uh, when a plaintiff is introducing evidence uh, to win their case than it would be if that same evidence were applied in a, in a criminal trial. There are four components that every successful lawsuit must prove. The defendant owed the plaintiff a duty of care. What is a duty of care? It's a legal obligation to provide services that meet reasonable standards. The defendant negligently violated or breached that duty. The negligent it was caused by I'm sorry, the negligence caused the plaintiff harm, usually through causation, which is a cause in fact or proximate cause, meaning that there was a close connection to a foreseeable harm. And four, as a result, the plaintiff suffered injuries or loss. There has to be injury. There has to be loss. There has to be harm, okay, for a, for a lawsuit to prove successful. You can't uh, mount a lawsuit just because you want to prove someone wrong. That doesn't work. Uh, that's frivolous and gets thrown out. A complete civil trial consists of seven main phases. I'll go over these very quickly. The pleading stage, the discovery and fact-finding, the trial stage, which means the jury, opening statements, witness testimony, closing arguments, a jury instruction, deliberation and verdict, final judgment, and in some cases, appeal. What are the differences between special education due process and civil lawsuit? Now, for those of you who are special ed parents, you know that you have a due process uh, ability to ask questions and to uh, attempt to uh, better service your child uh, with the school district uh, when it comes to their special education. Um, so some of the differences that you might find uh, with due process as it is defined on the federal level would be roughly 75 days for that. That's usually the limit. Uh, in a lawsuit, it can be anywhere from one to five years. Uh, I worked on a lawsuit uh, that was actually seven years old um, because it was one of my first and literally was my last when I retired. Uh, discovery. Uh, due process is more informal. Uh, the lawsuit follows what's known as the rules of civil procedure, which is very uh, lockstep and very specific regarding what you can and cannot do regarding issues of discovery. Uh, relief, which means essentially it helps me achieve what I wanted to achieve. Uh, in due process, you're seeking individual FAPE or IDEA modification, which can lead to a financial statement, uh, I'm sorry, settlement. Uh, CSL versus Wake County, I put that in the bottom because that surprises a lot of folks that actually uh, due process could result in a financial settlement. But a lawsuit can seek both financial wards and systemic procedural change. Think of a due process, rightly, as being something that involves your child. Uh, you're there advocating for your child, uh, and that due process creates a situation where hopefully 
uh, your questions have been resolved. Lawsuits are a little bit different in that uh, not only can it involve financial awards if the plaintiff wins, but also it can change procedural uh, issues that brought the lawsuit lawsuit, uh, forward to begin with. Um, Due process, as you know, again, if you're a special education parent, has an administrative hearing officer. A lawsuit is in a court of law with a judge or jury making the decisions. And regarding fairness, uh, due process assists parents and students with their individual needs. In a lawsuit, especially multiple plaintiffs or a class action, justice is determined by evidence often used to exchange policies, procedures, and or a culture. And while I've got this word culture up, I'm not going to talk about that again, but keep in mind that at least as far as this expert's opinion is concerned, restraint uh, and seclusion is a choice. It's part of a culture and that culture needs to be modified. Can I bring a lawsuit against the district without first going through a due process hearing? Well, first of all, ask an attorney. But in two cases, the attorneys, uh, I'm sorry, the parents tried to bring the suits for money damages against the district in federal court without first going through due process. In both cases, the court held that a student cannot avoid going through due process hearings before bringing an IDEA complaint in federal court, federal court, by limiting the relief sought for money damages. This means that even if a parent is only seeking monetary damages from the federal court, she must request due process hearing. Okay. And you see the reference to the lawsuit uh, down below. Ask your attorney in another case. A parent usually does not need to go through any due process other than a due process hearing before filing a claim in federal court. In another case, the process held, I'm sorry, the court held that the parents and their child were not required to exhaust their administrative remedies under IDEA on the grounds that it would be futile. This means that parents who prevail at due process under IDEA are not further required to proceed through a state's complaint resolution process before filing a court action. And you see, I've cited that there. It's a Long Beach Unified School District case. Um, A decision made in a due process hearing is final, except that either party can appeal the decision uh, by bringing a civil action in state or federal court after the due process hearing. However, keep in mind, uh, a judge is going to look very carefully at whether or not the due process uh, uh, laws and rules were followed. Part two of this is, can I bring a lawsuit against the district without first going through a due process hearing? Hmm, interesting question. If the actions of school or district officials are severe enough that those actions were criminal and or caused serious physical injury and or death of the student, a due process hearing may not be required, ask your attorney. And this, of course, uh, involves some of the cases that I was uh, an expert witness uh, retained uh, by the plaintiff, because in the, in the cases that I worked on, uh, unfortunately, the students uh, were, died. They were dead as a result of, uh, of seclusion and restraint practices. Since federal and state laws and school district policies and practices may differ, ask your attorney about administrative remedies uh, and due process. And your question is, is that child actually handcuffed like that? Yes, that child is actually handcuffed like that. Let's talk about selected case studies, some of which I worked on as an expert. Uh, We have a male 15 public school, suffered a seizure and lost control of his extremities and bladder, later became uncooperative. Uh, The assistant principal and other staff did not provide medical attention for the seizure and instead placed the student in a prone restraint for approximately an hour, resulting in death. 
death ruled an accident and no criminal charges were filed. The settlement for the, against the school district was $1.3 million. Two staff members trained in the use of restraints pinned the student face down, this is a male 14, on the floor for 20 minutes after he tried to attack a counselor. The student died from brain injury as a result of positional asphyxiation. Death ruled an accident. Uh, the facility settled with student's mother for over $1 million with no admission of liability. And again, that's important because it sends a message uh, by the press in particular that uh, there was no admittance of wrongdoing on part of the district. And yet, on the other hand, if I can back up, there was a $1 million uh, settlement. A female age seven, a teacher secluded the child in a wall-off area because she refused to do her work, sat on the top of her because she was wiggling a loose tooth and repeatedly restrained and abused her. Student was awarded $260,000. Uh, male, nine years old. School was only supposed to use timeout room as a last resort to correct inappropriate behavior, but put the child in the room 75 times over a six-month period for hours at a time for offenses such as whistling, slouching, and hand-waving. The school was unlocked, but a staff person would hold it shut. Uh, I'm sorry, the room was unlocked, but a staff person would hold it shut to prevent the child from leaving. Uh, the child's hands became blistered while trying to escape. Uh, that particular civil, sort, uh, civil suit was awarded $75,000. Uh, in addition, $1,000 for every time the child was placed in the room. And uh, I found it interesting that in 2013, I was raised right here in Northern California, in fact, in Contra Costa County, and graduated from Antioch High School. And in uh, December of 2013, one of the highest um, lawsuits uh, regarding the, uh, the award for $8 million was given to families of eight special ed uh, needs kindergartners who were physically and verbally abused by their teacher while school administrators failed to report it for what it was, which of course was child abuse. Now, as an expert for the plaintiff, uh, very often, this happens in deposition, but it could also happen at trial. How would I answer the question, well, Mr. Garrison, what would you do instead of restraint and seclusion? And thankfully, there are many alternative approaches of which I have broken all the rules to PowerPoint uh, and uh, submitted here a, a goodly number of those on a single piece of paper. But nevertheless, let me describe some of them. I would talk about outdated, outdated science, um, the fact that we are still doing rewards consequences, punishments, compliance, control. I would attack, in my opinion, any alternative that talked about behavior. Um, because when we start discussing behavior, that's when we start getting into trouble. We would sub I would submit scholarly research findings on neurodiversity, safe, and trauma-informed support. I would introduce negative long life, uh, lifelong impacts of aversive experiences on human development, I would talk about alternatives to discipline and punishment, for example, co-regulation. I would describe the benefits of targeting communication and relationships, not behaviors. I would emphasize the impact of stress and trauma on human development. I would place emphasis on neurodiversity. Uh, I would encourage uh, parents to, to submit a no consent letter. And what that means is that it's a no consent letter that essentially says you may not restrain or um, uh, seclude my child for any reason. 
I would provide examples of de-escalation strategies, which uh, Della Hook does in her book on page 156. I would cite Ross Green's work on collaborative uh, proactive solutions. I would offer granted integrated health comfort and control uh, mechanisms, Yukuru and the blocking shields as evidence of a, of a way that you can resolve conflicts that occur in the classrooms uh, and still keep everyone safe. I would show how low arousal approaches, such as confirming metaphases, phrases uh, to reduce fear and stress, uh, are very effective if you know how to use them. Uh, and finally, a little pitch here for the Alliance, I would read Robin Roskigno's article on gaslighting, because um, I find gaslighting uh, uh, typical of how school districts usually respond uh, to issues of parents who are demanding alternative to restraint and seclusion. I would build alternatives to restraint and seclusion by citing research like uh, Stephen Porges and Deb Dana on polyvagal theory, which is a relatively new theory talking about um, how we can create safe and socially engaged individuals as opposed to mobilized, agitated, frantic, or numb, collapsed, and shut down um, students. Uh, and if you uh, start researching polyvagal theory, you'll find that there's this uh, notion of ventral sympath uh, sympathetic and dorsal. Uh, the vagus nerve uh, runs throughout our entire body. And unlike Rene Descartes, who strongly suggested uh, that there is a complete division between uh, body and mind, uh, polyvagal theory suggests just the opposite, that there is a vagus connection uh, between body and mind. Uh, that influences our, our daily uh, behavior. Humans also provide clues of, uh, cues of safety and or threat through the use of voice, facial expression, posture, and other nonverbal forms of communication. Uh, so maybe that could be part of the teacher training process uh, when you're successful with uh, your lawsuit. I would also link seclusion and restraint to two other darker um, issues, and that is false imprisonment and solitary confinement. I would define it for false imprisonment occurs when someone intentionally or wrongfully confines another person against their will. And then I would ask the question, solitary confinement is highly controversial in prisons. Why is it used in schools? Hmm. And I would link seclusion and restraint to an act of torture. Um, I talk a lot about this in Emma uh, Vandercliff's book, uh, Talk to Me, about the relationship between seclusion and restraint and torture. Um, just one mention of that. Uh, there's lots of research that indicates that uh, that torture is just as problematic for the person who is torturing as it is for the person who is being tortured. So this particular definition, again, uh, is from the United Nations Convention Against T uh, uh, Torture uh, called UNCAT. And uh, for the most part, I think when you look at these kinds of definitions of torture and you add in the, uh, the term seclusion and or restraint, uh, you will find a connection, I think, uh, between uh, torture and seclusion and restraint. A word of caution. First of all, always ask your attorney. Second, of or, second uh, word of caution, uh, awardable costs can be capped under an applicable state law. So I don't want you... Um, seeing dollar signs in your eyes, because there are several states that cap uh, the ability of uh, uh, monetary relief under some circumstances. 
And that limit may not come close to making the prevailing party whole in terms of what was expended uh, to successfully, successfully uh, litigate the case. So don't always assume, first of all, that there's going to be money for you involved, because it's not always. And then, all for, and then the other issue is, even if there is monetary relief, it may be not enough to cover your case. So, um, so be very concerned about that, and obviously ask your attorney uh, questions about money. Litigation is one option to reduce and eliminate the aversive harm that accompanies restraint and seclusion. While this short introduction may increase your awareness regarding the process of litigation, litigation requires that an attorney or law firm represent you and your children in a court of law. Litigation is often difficult, costly, and time-consuming with no guarantee of success. Again, rely on your, your attorney to formulate the best plan of action. Litigation can assist the general public with an understanding of issues they may otherwise be unaware of regarding restraint and seclusion. Expert witnesses can be both helpful uh, or problematic to your case. Just ask any attorney. And successful litigation can request substantial re legal relief in a number of ways, such as reducing discrimination, increasing equal opportunity, supporting constitutional rights, and ensuring the application of evidence-based interventions. So with that in mind, here are a few resources. Uh, Janet Sobel's uh, book on litigation for anyone who's actually considering uh, moving in that direction. Uh, Mona Delahook's uh, Hooks, Beyond Behaviors. Emma Vandercliff's Talk to Me. Shane O'Hara, Why Torture Doesn't Work. Harvard University Press. Peter and Pamela Wright, who are uh, uh, specialists in uh, uh, education law. Uh, Laura Rothstein and Scott Johnson's book on special education law. And Jennifer Laviano's Your Special Education Rights, What Your School District Isn't Telling You. So again, you'll have access to all of this information, I'm sure, on the website. All right, Ron. Well, this, is, this has been fantastic. Uh, Jennifer and I are rejoining you, and I'm going to actually remove your your screen okay. here. Uh, this is fantastic information. Uh, and, and, and frankly, I've, I don't know that I've ever seen a presentation really like this before. And I think it's helpful to give people an idea. Uh, you know, often, you know, as a parent or someone that might be harmed through something like restraining seclusion, um, you know, we're, we're lost as to where, where to start and, and where we might end up. And I think the more you know, regardless of what path you end up going down, the better you are prepared to make decisions. So this is really helpful. And we want to, uh, I just want to mention to people that are viewing right now live, uh, we are open for questions. So feel free to put questions in the chat. I'm going to start off with one and then uh, give Jennifer a chance to ask one. Great. And then we'll get to some of the questions that are in the chat. And my question to you is kind of piggybacking on on what we were just talking about, how you know parents that or, or, or individuals that might be influenced by or affected by things like restraint seclusion, um, you know, what I hear you saying is that this is one of many different options. You have a unique perspective, having been an educator, uh, having been a school safety specialist, having been an expert witness. You know, if a parent were to come to you and say, Ron, I suspect this is happening with my child, where would you have them start and what things might you have them do before they got to civil litigation? Well, if it were a special education child, um, obviously you start with the special education department and uh, usually the administrator of that department uh, set up an appointment uh, so that you can talk to that administrator, clearly also involve the teacher in that process. Uh, if there's an IEP coming up, look at that, ask questions uh, within that IEP. Um, 
And then from there, if you don't really feel that your questions or your concerns have been answered, now we start talking about due process, moving in the direction of some kind of administrative hearing that provides relief for that special edu education child. Uh, if it's not special education, clearly going to the principal and providing the principal with the evidence that, that you need to prove the case that your child was uh, was uh, unlawfully involved in um, in, in uh, restraint and seclusion and uh, move that principal into a, uh, an area of increased awareness regarding what his faculty or her faculty are doing regarding um, the discipline of children, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned culture and, and culture is a really important piece in, in in the many conversations I've had with with parents and individuals that have been, ex, you know, experienced restraint seclusion, you know, what we often find is it, it's not just one one teacher that happens to be doing it in a school, but it's often something that is used throughout a school or a system. And again, you know, having some of those initial conversations to seek remedy for your child is important, but you know, getting that systemic change is really important too. And it's certainly the 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 opportunity for legal challenges to lead to change is, is good, but how else might somebody lead to a more, you know, a more systemic change within their school district or within their state or whatever that might be? Well, without, without litigation is uh, first of all, become an advocate for your child. And second of all, become an advocate for the process of what it takes to reduce restraint and seclusion in your jurisdiction, your state, your County, um, become active. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's that active approach, that proactive and active approach regarding the elimination of restraint and seclusion being your goal that leads you to various pathways to uh, give you the opportunity to actually achieve those goals. Mm -hmm. Great. Jennifer, um, you, 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 of course, were a little bit of a star of the show here as well, uh, getting the, uh, the right. uh, lawsuit that you're involved in mentioned. Um, do you have any questions for, for Ron? I'm just wondering if there have been any, any direct policy changes in any of the cases in which he testified. Yes, there were uh, a number of them. They were compelled um, to, in fact, change their policies and practices regarding restraint. Um, obviously, if, the, if a student has died as a result of those practices, uh, that's going to get a lot of attention. And if there is a multi-million dollar award uh, relative to that, particular case, that's also going to get uh, attention, especially of the school board. And so, yes, uh, I can point to direct change within school districts as a result of that particular, those particular court cases. Okay. All right. All right, great. Uh, I'm going to bring up a question here from Beth. Uh, Beth's a, a member of our team and also watching live. Uh, Beth said, I heard during a legislative committee meeting that the common law provides the protection of individuals who truly need to restrain someone if life slash limb might immediately be lost, if restraint wasn't done, example of a child running into the street, is this accurate? One of the major blocks to banning restraint or this um, or this is the fear that teachers, others will not be able to keep someone safe due to the restraint ban. Well, it's right there. It's hypothetical fear. And uh, yes, something like that could happen. But the question really sh should be asked, what can I do to provide alternatives to students who may engage in these, these behaviors? Um, and that's where we get some of those alternatives that I listed in my presentation. Uh, we have to develop uh, co-relationships with kids and to ensure that they don't run in out into the street. 
So I look at all of that as hypothetical fear. Talk to me about what you really are saying. What are your real questions regarding your particular child and or the school district and or how teachers respond to children and, again, the culture of that school? Mm. Um, we can come up with all kinds of hypotheticals about a kid being out of control. What's most important is that we identify alternatives to prevent that child from getting out of control and running into a street. Absolutely. I, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you know, rather than looking for other forms of crisis management, it's avoiding crisis in the first place where we can. That's correct. Yeah, absolutely. So I have uh, another question I'm going to bring up from a viewer and then I'm going to uh, ask one. And, and this was, um, what about suing individual teachers, principals uh, who practice these practices? Almost always. And if you look, look at the lawsuit here um, with uh, with QT, you will notice that individuals as an assistant superintendent, for example, is named as uh, as a, a party within the lawsuit. So yes, uh, very rarely do you simply see a single person or a school district uh, involved. It's usually a list of people who were either enablers or who simply did not see the problem. Uh, and that's usually discovered uh, during the process. That's why these complaints are usually amended several times uh, as new information becomes available. You know, I, I remember seeing you, you mentioned earlier that the 2009 GAO report, and I remember reviewing that. And one of the things that stuck out to me was that uh, there was a teacher in Texas that was involved in a death, as I recall, who then went off to teach in Virginia. Um, and it seems like, it seems like there are times where the people that are involved in these uh, situations are able to go off and continue teaching. Have you had any experience with that? And what are your what are your thoughts? I mean, what what should happen in that kind of situation? Well, unfortunately, um, that person should not be able to teach again. But as you well know, the the credentialing process for teachers is a state issue, not necessarily a a, a federal one. Um, when there are issues of personnel involved, school districts get very, very nervous because they don't want to get sued by the individual, uh, teacher, administrator, whoever, uh, for violating issues of, of personal uh, and private information. Um, so it is possible. Those things do happen, and we have to remain vigilant. I would suggest that parents be on hiring committees to ask those very questions. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, in some states, there is a series of questions that you can only ask. It's a list of questions, and that's it. You can't go mm -hmm. off script. Mm -hmm. uh, but hopefully, if you could go off script, those are the kinds of questions that we would want to ask. Now, hopefully also, within human resources, that person would be screened because references were checked. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, uh, Jennifer, um, and, and feel free again, you, we, I know we have some questions, but if you have anything from your own experience, feel free to ask that as well. I So in part of your thing you were talking about that you have to go through the due process, um, we in QT at all, and, and by the way, it's, it's, it's it, uh, Quentin is just the first name on there, but it's actually, there are six children memorialized in our lawsuit. And then also the organizational plaintiffs um, represent additional kids. I just wanted to make sure people knew that, it, that there, there are a lot of us together in this, but um, we survived numerous motions to dismiss on Fry versus Napoleon, which is to exhaust due process. And the reason mm -hmm. we did was because it was an ADA claim 
rather than a denial of fate claim. Have you found in a lot of suits, have they been able to survive motions to dismiss if they go towards ADA or, or most of them IDEA claims? It depends. <laughs> it depends on the individual case and yeah. the, the ability to the attorney. And as I indicated earlier to you, you had a good team of attorneys who yeah. obviously had done this before. And so they were able to uh, circumvent those very questions as a result of their past experience. Okay. As an attorney, um, both are difficult. IDA, FAPE, they're, they're difficult hurdles. Uh, and I, I could have mentioned more in the presentation, probably did too much, but for the most part, um, individual cases have to be decided individually. And that's why an informed attorney uh, is your best defense or offense uh, for ensuring that your, your lawsuit is successful. Um, there's just knowing federal special education law is a career all by itself. Mm. Okay. And not everyone is versed in it, including attorneys. So uh, it's a difficult, but an individual um, question to ask relative to how the law actually is, is framed. The other thing I'll mention is there's a difference between federal court and state court. And state court can have a very different opinion of things like IDEA and 504 uh, policies and, and procedures than a federal court. So, yeah, I was just wondering, I guess part of the question was that I didn't ask, so there's no way you would be able to answer it, was do you, I'm wondering if the road towards using civil litigation um, on this issue is more going towards ADA than to, to talk about that, you know, 80%, over 80% of the kids restrained and secluded are disabled kids, you know, and, and double the enrollment of black students are restrained and secluded. I'm wondering if we'll be more successful going towards ADA discrimination claims. And, you know, but I just or, wondering. Or 504 versus 504? Yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously the discrimination is there. And because of the 504 and the children who identified as 504 um, tend to be uh, more minority oriented uh, very often in communities. Uh, yeah, it, yeah it, it makes sense to look at that, uh, mm -hmm. but not necessarily again. We can yeah. look at IDEA and special education uh, uh, policies and procedures and, um, and use them, use them in a way that, that we haven't used them before. Uh, when it comes to applying uh, 504 or special education um, rules and regulations as formulated in IDEA. And by the way, I think because I'm, I'm getting technical talking about Fry and everything, just for our audience, Fry versus Napoleon was a decision. I can't, was it, I can't remember what year it was. It's, it's recent where that a court determined that the parents had not exhausted all remedies through due process. So since that decision, a lot of federal court cases get dismissed. And that we knew was our biggest hurdle was to survive this the numerous fry motions to dismiss both in the, that uh, the, the um, federal level and then the, uh, the, the interlocutory, which I can't even say, appeal to the Fourth Circuit. We have survived it all. We're, go we're still on a roll. So, but um, that's the hardest hurdle is to stay up over that fry 
Yeah, and your team of attorneys were very aware of that. There are several sections within your complaint that directly address those issues. So they were aware of that, as, yeah. as, as well as 42 U.S. Uh, 1983. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, okay. So I'm going to get to a couple uh, comments and questions from our audience here. Uh, and this one comes from Alicia, who's a special ed mom and lawyer uh, in uh, upstate New York. And her son was restrained almost daily, uh, sometimes multiple times a day before they pulled him from school. And the school said that he liked being restrained. Yeah, I'd like to know who they is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I just, um, since I equate torture with restraint and seclusion, uh, I, I, I find that hard to believe. Um, I would use this in my opinion, if that were actually a quote by an administrator, uh, that he liked being restrained, I would absolutely use that uh, and document it in my opinion. Uh, yeah, and it goes back to what you mentioned about Robin's article about gaslighting. You know, yes. we, we have often seen seclusion rooms called things like the blue room, the calm room, the fun room, you know, I, I mean, everything but the torture room. And, uh, you know, same with restraint. You know, we've heard restraint, you know, it's it's a therapeutic hug. If it walks um, like a duck. Right, 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 right. But there, there's absolutely a lot of that going on. So let me see yeah. what else we have here. Uh, let's see. I see a oh, question I'd like to answer. Okay. By Candace. Um, is restorative justice relevant to this at all? Absolutely. Restorative justice, I think, is a mechanism that is very appropriate. Uh, and I utilized in my own classroom, especially within the law academy, uh, when, when children were involved in behaviors that were not uh, on the lesson plan, uh, I stopped the lesson plan and we all formed a circle within restorative justice uh, um, uh, manner. And we talked about it and we talked about what effect uh, that's called an interruption would have had on the rest of the class. So I find restorative justice relevant mm -hmm. in many, many ways. Mm -hmm. And thank you, Candace. Yeah. Well, you know, and it gets to one of the things you hit on earlier, and it, it's it's one of my big, uh, big things, which is it's all about relationship. When you restrain or seclude a child, you are not building a relationship. You're my, my son remembers the man that restrained him in fifth grade today. If he sees him, he he remembers who he is. You destroy a relationship by doing these things. And you know, I, I always joke that the the three R's of education should be relationship, 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 restorative programs. You know, co-regulation, all these things. Uh, Ross Green's collaborative, proactive solutions. They're about maintaining relationships. Absolutely. Yeah. So I do have a couple of people have asked if your PowerPoint will be available. Of course, I want to remind people that we are recording and we will make the whole presentation available. Uh, but folks wanted to know if your slide decks might be available as well. I can send them as a PDF to you, guys. Okay, okay. okay. Sure, that's fine. And, and if somebody wants them, they can reach out to me by email. Uh, you can do uh, Guy Stevens, and that's G-U-I-S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S at nseclusion.org. I'll put that in the comments as well. And with that, we've got quite a few more uh, questions and comments, but let me, let me go ahead and uh, ask one of you now as well. Um, and, you know, you, you asked one of the important, important questions of me, which is like, you know, um, what else should schools be doing? But let me ask you the, the other part of that question, which is, you know, I, I don't think any of us are anti-teacher, anti-educator, uh, you know, want to blame anyone. We want to we want to fix and improve the system. We want to work with people to make differences. But why do you think that we find pockets where restraint and seclusion really seems to happen quite a bit more? And in other areas, they don't seem to use it at all. Right. And it's culture. You know, it's how we've always done things. It's, it's the way we deal with children in this particular school. Um, and I don't see a whole lot of teacher training programs that provide alternatives. 
uh, to those issues uh, and the, to that culture. Uh, and so as a result, we have we find that we have lots of kids uh, engaged in activities uh, and lots of teachers engaged in aversive activities against those children when those kids are perceived to be out of order, bad, um, non-compliant, because after all, as a teacher, I'm supposed to be in control. And I think I would like to go back to the teacher training institutions and say, no, do not train teachers to think that they have to be in control. They are there primarily to guide young people's education, especially in this digital age. They are more now facilitators than they are teachers. And if we can start with that, we can move this process forward in a way where restraint and seclusion becomes a, a dim memory. Yeah, I look forward to that. Yes. Uh, Jennifer? Uh, I had a question when you were talking and I complete, but going to the, uh, the culture piece. Oh, this is what, this was my question. Um, I've read uh, training materials of some of the companies that teach how to restrain and seclude. And it occurs to me, the culture doesn't start at the school, the culture, and it's, it's based on fear of children, basically. Mm-hmm. You read the materials for those companies training you sounds like these people are dealing going to be going into school and dealing with rabid dogs you know instead of yeah. children and do you think that 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 culture of fear i mean it, it starts before they even step into the building if uh if they've been trained by some of these companies like handle with care and some you know, some of these other ones are just well uh, it, it, it supports discrimination if if you don't look like me uh, and I haven't been trained appropriately to be able to respond to you as a human being, but as to someone who is different, has different values, all those other things that I frankly can't handle about you, um, then it, that's going to affect my behavior toward you. Um, yeah, the disproportionality of discipline uh, for kids of color is not an accident. Yeah. That, there's a reason for all of that. And, and part of it has to do with culture. Part of it has to do with my own inability to respond to what's happening around me. Uh, part of it has to do with anger and, frankly, non-professional responses uh, yeah. to the children under my care. So we have to profession up uh, our staff to help them understand that uh, this is a new age where we don't need to restrain children. We have other alternatives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that even a lot of the work, I mean, I hate to plug my my main thing but the words that we use about kids aggressive and challenging and violent and you know and it's just you know why not distress and challenged and you know i i, I just it, it just it bothers me that children have become these fearful creatures so mm-hmm. yeah. yes all right, uh, a couple more questions and comments here. Uh, this one uh, from Dana says, how can we retain you to represent our children? Of course, I remember you saying you that can't. lawyers hire you, but, right. but if, if somebody's aware of you and, and they, they happen to be involved in a lawsuit, would they would they point their attorney in your direction? Or how do people, how do no, attorneys find experts? No, I would, str- well, in my case, I would strongly indicate that I'm retired. Okay? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, one problem. Yeah, yeah that's one problem. Hey, for um, you. You don't, you're best to not deal with experts at all, because then there's an influence issue there that you don't want. Experts are supposed to be, by definition, objective, okay? And any contact made by um, by any of the parties outside of an attorney uh, mm-hmm. is seen as compromising, okay? 
So uh, I guess, again, the best answer to that is you can't retain me. Uh, you might recommend a person that you know as an expert um, to your attorney, to your lawyer, but that's the most you can do. Mm-hmm. I recall, and, and I could be totally wrong here because this is a random recollection that I, I don't know what it connects to, but I recall uh, learning about expert witnesses and learning that there were directories which attorneys would use to find expert witnesses. Is that correct? <clears throat> Absolutely. And so what happens is that an attorney or, an, or a firm or a law firm, um, and I remember the last one I got, it was about that thick, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that thick <laughs> of, um, of registered experts. And these are individuals um, who have worked in the courts previously. They have built up cases within their CV, their curriculum vitae. Um, they are recognized in their field. And some of these fields are extremely small. In fact, the smaller the, the, the uh, scope of the expertise, the larger the retainer. Um, but nevertheless, it's one of the situations where those attorneys have access to those individuals and that book or several books like that. So if they're looking for an expert in special education, restraint and seclusion, they would go to that appropriate page and you might find three or four individuals of which then they would call them up. They would briefly interview them. And uh, based upon that brief interview, uh, they would then retain or not retain that particular expert. So mm-hmm. whatever the field is, there is an expert out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and are, are there ways of, uh, you know, determining whether or not, the, I mean, how, I just wonder how they determine if they're good. You know, you mentioned kind of the importance of being impartial. Mm-hmm. And, and I only have done a, a lim- jury duty a limited number of times in my life. But I remember doing it at one point. And there was an expert witness and he kept referring to we and talking about the, uh, I guess he was talking about the um, plaintiffs, as I recall. But he kept referring to his, his we, and that kind of struck with me his credibility because it seemed like yeah. he was no longer being a, a separate expert witness, but it was part of the, the case. Um, right. Yeah. And even though you're retained by one side or the other, you still have to maintain objectivity. Mm. Uh, and I made sure I always did. That's why I was able to, to, work, to work with both sides. Mm. And uh, just like everyone else, attorneys talk to other attorneys. And one will call up and say, I need an attorney in school safety. Yeah, just a couple months ago, I used this garrison guy. He's a generalist in school safety, but he has this background. And he think he might be very appropriate for your, your case. Give him a call. Mm-hmm. Here's his number. So more often than not, it was word by word of mouth. But if there was no relationship there, uh, then they would go to the, the directory, which I also did. Uh, and that from that directory, they would, they would pull my name. But you're right. Um, by definition, an expert witness is to be objective. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you wish it could be that way. But of All course, right. if, if I'm being retained by you, I'm probably going to lean more in your direction than opposing right. counsel's direction. Right. So right. it's a fine line. Let's put it that way. Gotcha. Gotcha. Are, are there ever cases where an expert witness is used and because of what they're I mean, in any process and meeting with the attorneys, they decide, well, maybe this isn't our guy. Uh, I mean, if they're not, if they're that experts not okay. Yeah. Right. Ab- ab- absolutely. And that, that can, that can usually happen during deposition or after deposition, because that's where you really get to know an expert. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but it could also be at a time at which I'm formulating opinion. If my pa- an opinion in a complex ca- complex case is uh, three pages long and I've billed you 85 hours for those three pages, you probably know that something is wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you'd pick up the phone and talk to me uh, quite seriously about what is all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, if I, <laughs> there was this one expert I recall, 
She said, yes, I'm an expert, but I never testify in trial. And of course, the attorney, this was an attorney's story, and they just hung up on her because that's ridiculous. You know, if you are an expert witness, not only do you form an opinion, not only are you deposed upon that opinion, but you testify uh, on that opinion in court. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to bring up a couple more questions here from our audience, and then we'll get back to you, Jennifer. Uh, this one asks, um, is there a pathway to legally prevent these actions by making them unconstitutional as applied to all? Well, funny you mentioned the word all. Um, thank you, listener. Uh, we've got current legislation on the federal level now <clears throat> that effectively, yes, thank you, Jennifer, you know, she's <laughs> jumping up and down, um, <laughs> that essentially addresses the issue of restraint and seclusion, not necessarily making it constitutional, but making it certainly part of the uh, federal evidentially pre- evidentiary procedure relative to um, restraint and seclusion. And of course, as an expert, I would use that. I would use that in court and say, gee, you restrained uh, this man, this child in this manner. Do you realize that's a violation of this current act and or law? And that becomes very powerful to advocate for the for the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, another question here related to the Keeping All Students Safe Act. Um, just are, are you at all involved or, or will you be involved in, in any, um, you know, I mean, you you come out very strongly here and talking about torture. Um, you know, do, do you are you involved with Casa in any way or have intent to? No, and I hope to not be involved. To be honest, um, it, it, you know, if if um, I guess if drafted, I will serve. But the bottom line is that other people can make these connections. There are okay. lots of folks that are talking about the relationship between uh, restraint, and seclusion, and torture. Uh, and I also think. Of, of, uh, solitary confinement is another right. avenue right. that needs to be addressed here. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, if, if forget the prison to school pipeline, if if it's controversial to talk about solitary confinement within a s- prison setting, how can we even think about it within a school setting? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, those kinds of dots, I think, can be made uh, can be connected by folks who just maybe I've planted a seed. Now we can start thinking about how torture is related to restraint and seclusion on a seven-year-old child. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's a huge stretch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I talk a lot about more about torture in, uh, in Emma's book. Talk to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jennifer, I, I promise you that I get to your question, but I, I just, we had a shout out for you. Uh, oh. Thank you. Uh, you're amazing. So that's a good segue to your question. I will also say, um, you know, we mentioned the book a couple of times, the, the book talk to me where, uh, Ron, you've got a, a lengthy um, interview in there, and, and your stories are mentioned several times in the the text as well. So, a very good um, book to read. So, Jennifer, uh, what do you have for us? Uh, I would love to, for you to talk more about the connection, or if you feel there is one, I think you do, between behaviorism and restraint and seclusion. I was just having this conversation with someone this morning who's a behaviorist. And they said that they have nothing to do with each other. And I, 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 I beg to do. What do you, what do you think? Really? So operant conditioning has nothing to do with restraint and seclusion. Well, obviously I think it does. Obviously there's a thread uh, that suggests, at least in my mind, that behaviorism is a direct result of punishments uh, and consequences for children who are outside of the realm of normal. Okay. And, um, that, of course, uh, includes um, children who are in special education, 
who are by definition um, neurodiverse. And uh, just as we talked about disproportionality of, of minority kids, so too do we need to talk about the implications of neurodiversity in our schools and help people understand that within the spectrum of neurodiversity, behaviorism, behavioralism is a tough nut to crack uh, because it ultimately reduces to itself to these are bad behaviors uh, and those bad behaviors need to be corrected. And the minute you talk about correction, you're talking about control. Yeah. Uh, and the minute you're talking about control, you're talking about restraint and seclusion. So I would, uh, along with you, uh, strongly argue there, that there is a significant connection between restraint, seclusion, and behavioralism. And most of the people with whom I was speaking said, but ours is positive. This is the new kind. And, you yeah. know, Alfie Cohn's punished by rewards, you know. Well, so you know, you know Al Alfie... Something, but I'm not, you know. Alfie was one, I think, the best articulator of the difference between punishments and rewards and how they all fit into the behaviorist scheme. I think we're better than that now. We've got other alternatives. Yeah. Uh, we can do better than, than behavioral response to children, mm -hmm. um, of which I have just mentioned a few today. Mm -hmm. So we have th this, this, your presentation has sparked a tremendous number of questions. I would say probably more questions that I can remember getting in a presentation ever, perhaps. Um, so we've got quite a few and we've got a little bit of more time left. So I want to try to get through a few of these. But first, um, you know, we, we are joined here today by a rock star, Emma Vandercliff. Uh, we've talked about her a couple of times and we've talked about her book, uh, Talk to Me. Uh, we previously had done a, a really great uh, presentation interview with Emma. Um, and she asked a question. Um, you uh, talked about the changes in on human brains in my book. Can you say more? Hi, Emma. Hi, Norman. Yes, I can say more to that. Uh, there are lots of studies on torture. Uh, and uh, torture is clearly a stressful activity. And that that stressful activity, interestingly enough, has significant implications for not only the person who is torturing, but the person who is tortured. And uh, there actually are changes that occur, and you can read all about it in, um, hopefully I'm going to grab the book, in uh, Why Torture uh, Doesn't Work, The Neuroscience of Interrogation um, by uh, Sean O'Mara. Uh, and I think that's, on, that's as far as you need to go. One look at that book, and uh, you'll have a real understanding of how changes in the brain are the direct result of stress right. and the stress-related when it, to seclusion and restraint. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm going to get to a couple more here. Uh, our friend Alex, uh, he said, I always felt helpless and that the teachers that emotionally abused me got away with it all. So my question is, is there a way to call them out even decades after not seeing them, uh, at least if I remember their name? So, you know, Al Alex uh, went through a, a really negative experience and you know, I was wondering, you know, I mean, you know, at this point in his life is what he can do. I mean, certainly getting involved in helping to change things is positive. But do you have any other thought on that? Yeah, the, the, Alex, I think that's that's where I would go with this. You you need to find support in with other people uh, and leave this issue behind you. Um, do what you need to do to ensure that you're not having feelings of calling anybody out on these issues. Again, there are lots of things that you may not realize, uh, personnel issues, uh, issues of um, retribution on the part of that person if you called them out, uh, lots of things that could turn violent without uh, you expecting them to. 
So I would say at this point, move on with your life, uh, do things that are positive, become an advocate, uh, become an expert witness, uh, having experienced these things yourself and uh, direct, take that energy and direct it in a positive direction. Absolutely. Uh, and I want to bring is an artistic self-advocate and, and political activist. So, and he's been working with us, but I'm sorry to mean interrupt. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, Alex is definitely doing that and, and, and trying to influence the positive change. Yeah. Uh, I want to bring up one, and this, this is an important one. This is from an educator and, and uh, she's been an educator for 14 years. Uh, almost exclusively working with students receiving special education services, uh, has been certified in MANT, CPI, and handled with care, uh, and has encountered a lot of resistance when she avoids using restraint and seclusion, even when there's no risk of bodily harm. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how can I protect myself professionally when the culture may be adverse to ending restraint and seclusion? Yeah, Heather, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, are there interdistrict transfers available for you? Um, if you have a culture within a school that says that you are uh, not a good teacher because you're not applying restraint and seclusion in appropriate ways, I think it's time to move on. Uh, I think you need to find another school, another district. Uh, we need to have your talents in that are positive uh, as an alternative to those issues, not where you're feeling persecuted by teachers and administrators who feel there's only one way to handle a child and that one being restraint and or seclusion. So um, I, I think you need to find people that support you uh, within the school. And if that doesn't work, I would look at looking uh, for another school district to work for. Yeah, unfortunately, that kind of situation is not isolated by any means. I've, I've had many conversations with educators who in their own schools, I've come to this idea that, you know, we shouldn't be restraining and secluding kids and sometimes then become an outcast or even worse or, or retaliated against uh, and, and you know, sometimes disciplined inappropriately for, you know, rocking the boat. Um, and it, it really is a challenge, I'm sure. Uh, we've got two comments here in a very similar vein. Um, and this one talks about, um, you know, appreciate it when uh, he redefined that the problem is not the person, it's the way the person is treated in systems and institutions that privilege uh, brains and bodies over, uh, excuse me, that privilege brains and bodies over other brains and bodies. Um, and, and certainly, you know, one of the things that we hear a lot is, or see a lot, is the blame on the child. It's all about the child. And, you know, as, as Emma's books, uh, Emma's book illustrates and others, often it's, it's what we're doing that's so important to influencing the situation. I think about, uh, you know, I think about, um, you know, people that have, have said things like, you know, our own emotions and feelings are a contagion that are spread to children. You know, a, a dysregulated adult can't help a, a dysregulated child. So, I, you know, I think that's an interesting comment. Do you have any, any thoughts on that? Only come back and say relationships, relationships, relationships. Right, um, right, right. You know, that's what's important here. Understanding that we can co-regulate their behavior as well as ours by simply communicating what those behaviors are um, and, and talking about it and listening to where the child is coming from. Um, it's almost as if we forget, and Philip Ari in, in his book called The Centuries of Childhood, uh, was one of the first to point this out as a historian, we have a very different view of what children are versus what we, in ways we used to treat them. And um, I, I think it's important to understand that they are not the problem. 
very often we or the institutions are the problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, kids need to be supported, not destroyed by the institutions that serve their needs. And in some cases, especially in the case of a homicide where a child has actually died as a result of a restraint, uh, that be, that's that's harmful. That's aversive harm that needs to be erased, never to return. And trauma throughout the whole culture. I mean, I, I often talk about in my posts on on Facebook is that uh, the kids witnessing it. It's not just the person being restrained and secluded and the person doing the, but the kids witnessing it, hearing the screaming and the seclusion style, seeing their friends face. And, and, curi- and curiously, the same is true of torture. Uh, yeah. Individuals who observe a a person being tortured by another individual carry almost as much stress as the person who is doing the torturing. And it's curious to me that um, in our modern culture with modern media and movies, it's difficult to find a single movie that doesn't involve some form of torture, Mm -hmm. either physical or psychological. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if it's been ingrained into the culture. So it's okay. Well, it's not okay. And there are lots of reasons why it's not okay. And we're producing individuals who have very serious deficits as a direct result of being exposed to torture. Yeah. yeah you know, a lot of it relates back to kind of the trauma cycle. And in the trauma cycle, you know, we sometimes forget affects both kids and adults that, you know, when a, when a kid, perhaps with a trauma history, is restrained and secluded, they're traumatized. And, and when, right. And when they're traumatized again, that makes it more likely in the future that they're going to be bringing more trauma in. And of course that then affects them feeling unsafe, feeling hypervigilant. But, you know, I think that adults also end up in that same trauma cycle when they're using these things, you know, it's traumatic for everyone involved. And that trauma leads to, you know, fight or flight. And that trauma leads to everyone getting hurt. It can be the, the teachers, it can be the, the students and the staff, you know, anytime we're doing these things, the chance of somebody getting hurt goes up. How can you explain positional asphyxiation if not people out of control? Right. Absolutely. It's not, only, it's not only just about training. As I mentioned in Emma's book, these interventions look more like a fight to me mm-hmm, than, mm-hmm. than an intervention. Right. Right. Okay? right. And so you're telling me you're fighting a 12-year-old child because they're, they're doing something that you don't want them to do? Right. That's not appropriate. That's right. not a professional. And I'll see you in court. Yeah. And, and even more commonly, seven, eight, nine year olds, you know? Yes. Um, yeah, it's really, really disheartening. So this has really been fantastic. Uh, I think we're just about at five o'clock here. So it's about time for us to wrap it up. Jennifer, uh, do you have any last questions before we uh, we wrap things up? I actually just want to thank you for what you've done for kids. Um, and I, and, and, and I've, I've read, I read you in Emma's book and um, people like you, give me hope that um, the world can change because it needs to. And I, I really appreciate, I don't have a question. I'm just, I just want to thank you for existing. That's all and for all you've done for kids. Thank you for, for that, Jennifer. Very much appreciated. That's great. Well, Ron, thank you so much on, on behalf of, of the Alliance and our audience here. This has really been a fantastic presentation. And and knowing that you're retired, I, I still uh, I appreciate you making time time to do this, um, but still look for other, uh, I'd look forward to any other ways to collaborate with you. Uh, certainly, I think that um, this presentation was resonating with people 
and really informative. So thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and give a couple announcements here, but I just want to thank you again and uh, look forward to maybe trying to put you on the hook again for, for something else. This has been really, really fantastic. No so problem. Thank you. Thank you again, Jennifer. And thank you, Guy. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. So let me just give a, a quick announcement here. Uh, I want to thank everybody again for joining us today. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed this presentation and uh, were able to learn a lot from it. I do want to let you know that we have a, another presentation coming up here again in uh, uh, just another two weeks. We're keeping our, our regular schedule here. And we're going to have Cheryl Poe, who's also part of the Alliance, providing tips and tools uh, for special education advocacy for those who are often ignored. So uh, another great presentation coming up. I do want to let you know that, of course, this one will be um, recorded and available on YouTube and on Facebook and to listen to us on audio podcasts. And, you know, I want to thank all of you that spent some time with us today and that are part of the uh, part of the this effort. Um, you know, lately there have been some positive things happening. We've got the reintroduction of the Keeping All Students Safe Act. We've got a lot of people coming together for positive change. And I'm feeling optimistic and really appreciate all of you that are part of our community here. And thank you for everything you're doing. So that wraps us up for today. Thank you very much. And we'll see you next time.